From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We have the whole crew in here. Eric Bradlow is here. Shane Jensen is here. Audie Weiner is here. And this is Cade Massey. Some combination of us are here every week to do this. We're going to go for about two hours. This is Tuesday afternoon, our usual recording time. The show will go up on SiriusXM tomorrow morning, be replayed a few times over the course of the week, and then we'll get the podcast up tomorrow as well. We have a couple of interviews in the second half of the show. Delighted to talk to a couple of our guests, one repeat guest and one new guest, going to end the show talking about Bo Jackson, a new show, a new book about Bo Jackson. Good fun, good fun, just good good old-fashioned storytelling on Bo Jackson. But in this first hour, we just want to hear about what's going on in the world of sports. Gentlemen, I think I know what's top of mind right now. As we went to tape, the U.S. was just wrapping up their last group stage match against Iran. They managed to pull it off. They're going to advance. They've got the Netherlands on Saturday. I was not able to watch this game. I was nervous just keeping tabs on the score. What is the report on the game? How are y'all feeling? And what do we know about the World Cup more generally? Well, I think this, uh, it's, I think Shane talked about it. I think it was last week or maybe it was on a text chain earlier during the week. I think we need to, again, forget the score was one to nothing. That score should have been more than one to nothing. So I think we have to go back to expected goals again, because my concern continues to be, obviously, it was a great win today, and Pulisic made a great goal. Great run down the center, great header to set him up. All of that was fantastic. But you're watching that game and saying a skilled team would have put four or five into the net there. Like, for example, England (laughs) beat them six to two. England scored six against Iran, and I'm pretty sure they could have scored eight to ten against Iran. So my concern continues to be the U.S. good news, except for the penalty kick by Christian Bale in Wales, the U.S. has given up zero goals. They can defend. They have zero goals to England, the fifth ranked team in the world. They They just scored three on Wales today as well. Correct. The U.S. right now does not appear to be able to score effectively. And that's going to be a huge problem going forward. That's my major takeaway. Great midfield play, tremendous midfield play, really skilled defenders, but they don't have the elite scores that teams need to really advance far in the tournament. Yeah, I mean, I just pulled it up while you were talking because I, I kind of agree. And I, just to kind of maybe support that a little bit, I was just looking that, you know, in, in that England game, for, so in, in the game that the U.S. played today, they had 12 shots on goal. I, I mean, again, I'm using shots. What else do we have as sort of a measure of yep. offense that doesn't isn't goals? Um, they had 12 shots, five of them on target. Um, in Which the England good. versus Iran game, they only had 13 shots, seven on target. Yet six goals. So I, I, again, to the extent that it's like it's it's you know, I mean, the England had much greater kind of possession time than Iran compared to the U.S. U.S. and Iran were kind of fifty fifty. But I don't know if that's some suggestion that you know the U.S. is they're 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 able to push the ball forward and create opportunities, but they may just not have the skilled players at the uh, you know at, at, on the offensive side to kind of actually put it in the back of the net compared to what England has. I want to. I want to pass along wisdom from, I'm just going to keep on quoting O'Hanlon. We had him on a couple of weeks ago and that's 90% of what I know about soccer. I feel like I learned from his book, his 
observation, he's just kind of reporting what the world understands about soccer these days, is that goal scoring in soccer is more about what happens, you know, pre foot hitting the ball than, than after foot hitting the ball. It's more about creating these opportunities and actually converting that the converting is, it feels like it's more like, you know, three point shooting or something. It's, you it's know, chance yeah, well, once it's once, once you have the opportunity created the situation, what happens from there is more or less chance. Yeah. I think, I think a couple things, I think two things come to mind. One is something related to a study Adi has done. I know when I think it's baseball, but is you know, basically looking at win percentage as a function of salary cap and all that of salary spent on teams. And obviously there's a very strong relationship. Um, I think let's, um, let's remember every single player on England, for example, plays in the either the English Premier League or La Liga or what the U.S. might have two or three. So the other difference is that these other teams, Spain, England, France, besides they have, you know, I can name all three of the frontline players on England's team because they're all international superstars. So if we just added up the salaries, <laughs> no, no, I'm saying let's add up the salaries, not from the teams. They don't get paid by the teams. Let's add up the salaries of these yeah, teams. Right. And maybe that's why the U.S. can't score as well as England or France, because I'll make it up. They, those teams may have a half a billion dollar salary and the U.S. might have a hundred million dollar total salary. So mm-hmm. it's just very different. There's no level. Of yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, we could have without any analysis, we could have gone in the World Cup saying like the U.S. is a less talented team than yeah. England and Brazil yeah. and Spain and Germany and all, you know, it's just I, I think it's sort of like to the extent that there's like a particular way in which they like, 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 you know, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about the ways in which maybe that differential is you know between them and the really big players is is the most you know kind of accentuated and maybe it is at kind of on the offensive side on the scoring side or maybe that's that maybe that's where going from the 99th percentile to 99.9 percentile of athlete in soccer that's the that's that's you know scoring is where that biggest difference is i think i I think the analytics that uh, kate talked about we can answer that question now i mean not as we're sitting here live but i mean we can answer the question of, you know, are they getting the same number of opportunities? Are they getting the same quality of opportunities? Given the quality of opportunity, are they scoring? So when you look at something like expected goals scored, that's given you're at that final point of potentially scoring, How much? what's an expected number of goals from that location? So my guess is, and I think it's probably the same as Shane's, but the data will tell us this, I think they're getting the same number of opportunities I don't think the opportunities are as high quality and even yeah. conditional on yeah. the quality, they're not converting at the rate. So in some sense, it's not just the conversion rate is lower. The quality of opportunities is not as good. And well, I think we, the frustrating, we, uh, a little bit the frustrating thing about analytically trying to give that some analytical backing <clears> is it's, it's actually a pretty difficult exercise without a lot, you know, kind of the high, re- high resolution data to kind of to really accurately quantify you know, the difference in scoring opportunities. Cause as, as Kate sort of said to start, it's, it's not just about, you know, where you are, where you kick the ball. It's like what the space, the space that's been created in front of you and near you by but your they, teammates, et cetera. But they are, that, that, that is what expected goals tries to do. Right. And they get more sophisticated every year. So a simple exercise is just to compare shots, England, U S shots against Iran 
expected goals against Iran and actual goals against Iran. And we know that the actuals are quite different. Expected goals right now, the calculations factor. I mean, I, I, I factor not only the shot location, but also the spacing of the other players. The, like the position, the position of the players and even, wow. even the goalie position as well. Interesting. Eric. Okay. Yeah, I wanted also something I tweeted on our, you know, tweeted through Wharton at W Moneyball. Um, I heard something from one of the announcers during the game the other day, after the game the other day, that I thought this person has a good intuition for analytics. So there's an announcer, former U.S. player, Alexi Lalas. By the way, if you haven't seen the telecast, he's fantastic. And so he's one of these, you know, very excited guys on there. And after, uh, I think, let's call it was uh, Senegal or Ghana. I think it was after the Ghana match and Ghana had won. They asked him, aren't the African teams outperforming? And his comment was, well, that's one possible empirical explanation. Here's another. The ranking system's no good. And the rankings, there's too much uncertainty in the rankings. And so his comment was, everyone's saying, well, the African teams are doing better than their rankings. And his comment was, well, who said the rankings were accurate? And Mm -hmm. so I just thought it was an insightful look at him recognizing that, okay, we all agree, as Shane said, France is great, England's great. But once you get out of the top five or seven teams, there's probably massive uncertainty between teams 10 and 30. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what his comment was reflecting, which I thought was really good. Mm-hmm. So I, I watched uh, quite a bit of soccer. I think I've watched a good portion of all the U.S. games, maybe, maybe a little bit some of the others, but not much. But for me, that's a lot. And one of the things that I, that I feel like I can't do um, or I'm, is just watch the game and see who's the better team. Um, and, really? and, and, and I mean, it, you think you should, right? But like, for example, today's game against Iran it looked like the first half, it looked like the U.S. was dominating. They were right there all the time. But Much at better. the end of the game, Iran was dominating and they were right there the whole time. And so what's the, what am I missing? I mean, what, what's my well, I mean, other than shots against goals? And a lot of those are not even good shots. And, no, the, and Adi, then, so this is a strategy question. So the question is up one to zero. The question is, does the U.S. continue playing the style that they played in the first half, which, by the way, leads to greater, obviously, scoring opportunities, but also leaves you more vulnerable? Or now that you're up 1-0, you know, this is the classic, you know, what does, let's go to the NFL. What does prevent defense prevent? It prevents winning. And I think prevent defense is is even more used in soccer. Correct. Mm -hmm. And did Mm -hmm. so, did it make it seem like Iran was the better team? Yeah, they were getting more of the offensive play because the U.S. was playing highly defensively the last 15 to 20 minutes of the game. Now, Adi, your question's a good one, though. Why didn't they keep playing the same style? Given, I think Cade pointed this out. I think he did. They literally had zero shots in the first half. Well, that that style that they were playing was doing something right. And maybe they should have kept playing that style for 95 minutes instead of 75 and then playing back for the other 20. I think that's. Well, I mean, one thing worth noting is, you know, I, I, I think one thing that leads to prevent defense in soccer, other than just, you know, like risk risk adversity, is. You know, tiredness. So, I mean, like, you know, they can't be necessarily as offensive in their style or aggressive in their style, you know, all the way up until the 90th minute because those, the player, they they probably start the game with the players that are most ideally sued for that. And those players get tired and need to be substituted. And those substitutions are where you actually make a conscious decision. Are you going to go more defensive or stay aggressive? And I so think one, most times that's where I think the defensiveness really comes in. Yeah. And so you, one, one 
consequence of that is that it will become even riskier to continue that aggressive style if your guy because yeah the the the, 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 per, the personnel that would execute it are tired or you have put in personnel that are less yeah. you know less to you know or that's not their game as much Okay, I want to note that this has been a little bit of a want-wah discussion given that the, that the U.S. just advanced. I mean, come on, yeah. can we not celebrate? This was like 50-50 proposition more or less coming into the tourney and no better really before today. They could yeah, have no, easily right. not By done this. By the way, this. U.S. and Iran were almost equal. Maybe the U.S. was like, I don't know, 19 or 20 in Iran. Yeah, the U.S. Was- the U.S. needed to win. A draw would have, they would have not advanced. It would have been easy to draw Iran. Easy. And and so I, we, we need a little bit of celebration. Now they go off and face the Netherlands well, in the round of six. It's not tragic. And historically, they've been a very good team. They didn't even qualify last time. So I don't, and you know, is it basically Shane's coin flip model now between a couple of no. teams like that? No, no. I, will, I mean, oh, no. it's, a, it's a coin flip with the same three countries. I'll always flip. You know, get, get I don't, heads, okay, I mean, okay, but but with U.S. Netherlands, where does anybody yeah. get? Can we get the betting odds? The betting odds must be up somewhere. Oh, it's got to be already. like at least like two to one, two six, to one. Yeah, Netherlands? two to one. That that would it be seems, my guess. I don't know. I, Given I mean, the uncertainty in soccer, it feels like that's too high. Well, this is this is my quandary with soccer in general. Is that it seems incredibly stochastic because like one thing to, try, to like one event completely within yeah. the event game completely determines the match. Yeah. But it's like incredibly stochastic. But the same countries always kind of make it. Okay, I mean, you know. Well, so so so. By the way, we're looking at odds that that. Oh, Eric, you said one eighty. No, I'm just I'm just starting. I know Matt typed in a different number. I'm just looking at the number right now. And it has the Netherlands money line at minus 180. And it has the U.S. To advance money line. Well, by one means or another. They, they might draw and win in penalty kicks or whatever, but it's minus 180 to advance. Yeah, the U.S. to advance, it says plus 175. Netherlands to advance minus 230. This is from DraftKings. Okay. So the market's anyway, that's not far, far from, from the two uh, to one. It's not far from the two to one that Shane's yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shane yeah. suggesting. Okay, good enough. All right, guys, any other observations on the World Cup? Has anything else stood out to you? Anything else you're paying attention to? I think there's to? just been a lot of upsets in the World Cup. I mean, again, if we're using the rankings, I mean, obviously, Saudi Arabia, I think, beating Germany, right? If I have that right, I think. Argentina. No, Argentina. Oh, Argentina. Sorry, Argentina. Um, Germany, though, as I remember, Germany still has to win their last game or yep. they won't advance, right? They lost a game as well. Yeah, Germany only has, I think, uh, well, they have, uh, uh, like, at least according to 538, like a two-thirds chance of, getting through. I think you're right. They have to win their last match, basically. I think they have to win their last match. Um, I just think there has been um, a lot of upsets in the tournament. And, you know, uh, also, Eric, except- is it, Eric, real quickly on this point, is it like the, is it like the NCAAs and that we, we see early round upsets, but we don't see late round upsets and enjoy it while it lasts because eventually we're going to get France, Brazil, and it's going to be chalky in the end. I think there's just my own opinion, Shane. I've I mentioned Shane's as well. I think you could, on paper, you could still see upsets in the next round. I think could the U.S. beat the Netherlands? Yes, it's, it's possible. I think once you get down to the final eight, there's just those eight teams are just better. I'm not saying anything can't happen in a soccer game. And we should actually, you know, this would be something to look at. I'll try to do some research before next week about which sports have the greatest uncertainty. Like we always talk about there's a lot of randomness in soccer. Like is soccer, is there more uncertainty there? Like if one plays 10 in soccer, does the 10 have a better chance than one playing 10 in college? Or, or the way or we often one do- playing 10 in NBA or one playing 10 in hockey or one yeah. playing 10 in MLB. 
Yeah. Um, it would be very interesting to see that. I think because most we're, 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 yeah, because I, I mean, I, has more. I just want to I just want to point out that you're. This is something we don't emphasize enough that 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 the rant, the unpredictability of a particular game depends really on two different components. One is the nature of the game, right? The other is the distribution of the talent in yeah. that's correct. No, and those, I mean, I those think could be good kind of thinking a good way that we think about it across a lot of different sports is, you know, how, how many, in this case, countries would you need to include to like, say, get above 50% or 80% probability that your set includes. How how do we not play that game? We always play that game. How do we not play that game before the tournament starts? We want to do it. Well, we have to wait to the round of six. We have the round of 16 and we'll do it. Or you want to do it? Yeah, let's do it at the round of 16. Let's do it around 16. But, you know, it'll probably it's going to be smaller I mean, than anything we've ever done before. It will probably be four or five teams at most to get like 80% at least. Of you the think so? Uh, yeah. I think I would take the 12. I think if you picked four, I think I would probably, like nobody probably would. At 50%? Last, uh, 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 oh, you 50%? said 50%. I thought you said 80%. I'm sorry. I, I, 50. I, Let's do 50. 50-50 50. is more fun. Oh, oh, oh. I put four at 50. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you said 80. You might get three. You might get three. They didn't yeah. win, but I mean, aren't I right that France played Croatia in the last World Cup finals. Yeah, Croatia no, that, did really well. Was that Euros? Was that the last? I don't think that was the yes. last one. But that yeah. was, Croatia is an example of the rare time when something, some team out of the big four or five make it to the – By the way, England amazing... would be kind of uh, a relatively historically unique thing to happen. Well, I, in think, I think, Shane, I think most people, by the way, just as you said, I think England probably wouldn't be in your four. And okay. I think they certainly have, you know – not a de minimis probability of of make of make yeah, of winning. They have right, five right. just they're in that set. So I would take the outside set. Well, let's for, let's see what the set actually is. Yeah, let's see what because because whether Germany and Argentina make it through might start might might change our calculus a little bit. Absolutely so. right. Well, just one last observation here that it 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 took. I was too slow in realizing a very basic thing about tournament design that this the the group stage and the knockout rounds. That's just regular season and playoffs in any other sport, you know, there's some qualifying stage and then you get to a knockout stage and presumably that what's the logic behind those two things. One, we think that there's best drama when it's knockout. So the maximum suspense and entertainment comes from knockout, but if it's knockout all the way, you you have too high a chance of the good teams getting beaten in upsets. And so you give them. And I think this is is kind of relevant just because next time around, when it's in America, like Lex World Cup, it's, they're changing the format in a relatively dramatic way yeah. in that it's going to be 48 teams instead of 32. Yeah. And it's going to be groups of three where uh, two make it through the knockout stage. There's going to be an extra round. There's going to be a round of 32 knockout stage, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I so think let's... increases. So it, 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 I, I think that that's randomness or chance inducing. But let me just I think say, the I'm new all... tournament design will Good. add that's a great randomness. observation. That's right. I know that's I've, right. I've learned, uh, Shane, uh, Kate, I mean, it seems like, I know you, I think it was, I forget if it's college baseball or whatever sport. It seems like you like uh, tournament designs that have multiple different processes in different rounds. <laughs> That's one. I've learned that. Um, but secondly, <laughs> I love this design because, you know, forget that there is, you know, the group of deaths sometimes and this and that. That form of randomness definitely plays a role. There's no yeah, doubt yeah, about yeah. it. But you play every other team in your group and there you go. You know, mm-hmm. that's it. There's no like, oh, my, I can't believe I drew England. All right. Yeah, you played England, but so did yeah. Iran and so did Wales. You know, yeah, right, that's right, it. Right. That's Everyone a good point. Plays everybody. It's a great design. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's good fun. And of course the knockouts just add a whole another level of fun to it. So we have, we have a lot of fun in front of us. We are through the second of the four days of the final group stage. We've got mm-hmm. a few games ahead of us yet, and then we'll know who's going to be into the round of 16 um, guys. Bef- what else you got? Anything last? Maybe we should just wrap up Q1 there on a straight soccer note. Why don't we do that? And then we'll save Q2 for football in its multiple varieties, as well as a few other bits here and there. It's Amer- American football in its multiple varieties. All right, guys, that's been Q1. We've got three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second quarter. Just had a little World Cup conversation because we started this thing on the heels of the U.S. qualifying for the knockout rounds, which is always kind of the thing. It's like making the playoffs. That's what you hope for, really, when you're just kind of a middling team. You just want to make the playoffs. So the U.S. is through. We'll talk more about that next week. Good fun. They will, will they'll either still be alive or not by the time we talk next week because they got a game on a match on Saturday. We have lots to talk about in front of us in the world of sports. You guys can jump in here and join the conversation in a way we like it when you do. Hit us up on Twitter, please. Our Twitter handle, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We're up there a lot. We like to hear from you. Whatever you got, positive, negative, give it to us. Also, write us, email. Our mailbag is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We love hearing from you. Could be short, could be long, could be positive, could be negative, could be curious. Just drop us a note. Gentlemen, we are just through the regular season of college football. We've got the championship weekend ahead of us. On the other end of that weekend, the fight, the playoff field will be set. We're also just wrapped up, what, week 11, week 10, week 11 in the NFL? We're, we're getting a little long in the tooth on the NFL side as well. What's on your mind? What's on your mind in the world of football, American football? Well, I mean, the game. I mean, the Michigan-Ohio State game was uh-huh. – that okay. was obviously a titanic – battle in the sense of two undefeated teams, uh, you know, this late in the season. I don't think it had happened. I don't remember how many years they said, but it had been a long time since Michigan and Ohio State. And Michigan looked damn good. I mean, that's a very surprising outcome. Um, well, they won by like, what, three touchdowns, four touchdowns? Three touchdowns. It was a really, yeah. really big. They were the underdog coming in there, like an eight and a half point underdog or so. It was in Columbus. Um, most people watching that game, it was tight for a while. People kept on thinking they were about to come back. There was a moment before it got out of hand. It's one of these moments that just it's inches this way, inches that way. And the whole game might turn a defensive back from Michigan got his hand in front of a would be touchdown in the end zone. It was going to the tight end for Ohio state. I think they settled for a field goal on that drive, but, or maybe, yeah, I think that's right. It was settled for a field goal, but just the perfect play, the perfect play. Textbook defensive play, but it was by inches, inches. And this is when when two teams are that evenly matched. The score doesn't look like it in the end, but teams are that evenly matched. It's just knife edge, the things that go one way or the other. It's extraordinary. But tell me this about that game. So what, what happens after that is that Michigan just went bam and bam and bam and bam again. They had, I don't know, five plays over 50 yards. They had probably four plays touchdown plays of 70 yards. And my question to you guys, I'm t- don't answer too quick. <laughs> my question to you, is it more or less impressive 
to beat a team with four touchdown plays of over 70 yards. Less. Or less impressive than the counter where we just say they had five or six long drives down the field. Yeah. I'm the same. Yeah. I mean, same maybe not. Score, but I now give yeah, you this extra piece of information. I'd probably even shave a little bit of the score and, and ask, but um, yeah, roughly that. Audie's got the audience. Well, I, listen, what do I know uh, about evaluating a football team other than what I've learned from you guys? But, and that would be that take a, a page from Rufus Peabody's playbook when he says, look at play success. That's the best mm-hmm. predictor and essentially truncate or the big plays out of the picture. Um, so, and that's, so that's what they do. Real quick, who do you think won play success? Who had a higher success rate on play success? Right. So, so, so one would say reminder, the longer drives were the one would be the ones that have the higher play success. But well, I, I can tell you, Ohio State. My, I believe I've seen that Ohio State had a higher success rate, play success rate than Michigan. Did. What's the definition um, of play success? It's people use different ones, but it's you know more or less like four yards on first down, half of what you need on second, and then getting a first down on third. And and you can think of it as your expected points added went up on the play. So it was positive in that sense. That's a good definition. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's a great observation. Uh, basically, you're saying, look, play success is much more reliable predictor than are these explosive plays. And Michigan actually lost play success and had these you know, extraordinary explosive plays, which were so much fun to watch. It was like, if you're pulling for Michigan, it was just extraordinary. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I do think I, I kind of just to kind of, you know, agree with how evenly matched it actually ended up uh, in my, my viewing of it seemed, even though the result ended up like a little bit blown out. I mean, coming out of that game, I mean, obviously, I don't I don't know. Does this not I mean, you you guys can tell me if this knocks Ohio State out of, you know, kind of the running for the playoff, et cetera, et cetera. But I think a problem with that is that, I mean, besides Georgia, is is there any other team? you would favor against either one of those teams straight up. Yeah. So one second, let me just say one last thing on this conversation we've been having. I want to credit um, Ed Fang, who's actually a Michigan fan who, who called this out a little bit and then Conley jumped in on it and some others have jumped in on it. Um, that, that this, that if you were to play them, I mean, forget about favoring against other teams. What if they played again? What do you think the line would be if they played? That's what I wanted to talk about. I can think of three interesting Two are counterfactuals, and one is just a question. One is, let's imagine we wipe. They never played the game, and we played it again. Who do you think would win? Then, now we've observed the game between them. Now let's have them play again. Who do you think would win? Those are two different questions. And then the third thing is, given they played the game and we see the score, where in the score distribution, like let's say they played that thing an infinite number of times, where would a Michigan 21 or 22 point win fall in this difference in score distribution? I think that's the part most people would say is probably in the 99th yeah. percentile. Oh, I wouldn't go that far, but there's so much variance in college 97th football. percentile. I'd probably go low 90s or something like that. But some but, very long. Yeah. But to me, the interesting part is maybe this is related to audience, but if they played again right now, it's not even obvious Michigan would be favored over Ohio State. You're telling no. me that one game, you told no. me it was an eight and a half point spread. Exactly. One game, you would update more than eight and a half points. I just don't believe it. No, no way. You're not going to. I, I agree entirely. You're not going to. We can look at uh, Nate Monzo's, Nate Monzo's, you know, our CFB Nate on Twitter. He's got this wonderful um, page that we've t- looked at before. I should share my, I should share my window so you guys can look at it as well. He blends, he, 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 um, 
grabs models from a number of different people and uh, gives us a composite score. So his composite, which is after that game, obviously, still has Ohio State the second best team in the country. And he'd make them like a, this is him blending others, but he'd make it like a 0.7 or more or less a push. But you can just kind of go across these columns and you can see most systems, it looks like the, there's one that has Ohio State about a five-point favorite, a couple that are pretty even, and a couple that would lean a little bit towards Michigan. That's well, a pretty big update. Let's go back to the question that was asked. I think it was Shane. That is, Ohio, or maybe is, is Ohio State out? Are they out? Can they not remember? They can't be the conference champ. They're and, not out. They're not out, out, Eric, because um, we don't because teams still have to play. This is the, the so the the set of teams that could make this happen are essentially Georgia, Michigan. Most folks think that they're in. TCU, in no matter what, yes, most think that, and TCU and USC most think that if they win, they'll get in. So those are teams that. Most like the short Georgia and Michigan are in regardless. TCU and USC control their destiny. But then the other teams that have some consideration is obviously Ohio State. And then Alabama is oh. still floating around. And if, you know, Alabama is going to jump into these conversations, if either of those teams playing championship games, TCU and USC lose, Ohio State will be in the mix. Alabama will be in the mix. God help us if both of them lose. So they'll still, when TCU is undefeated, they would only be one loss. They might still get in even if they lose, but USC can't can't afford to lose. It's just a, it's a super interesting conversation. There is a position put forward by Dan Wetzel. Dan Wetzel is a sports writer who argues, look, if the field was set, here's the logic, guys. I like this logic. If the field was set today, it would be USC, TCU, Georgia, and Michigan. Why would these teams who, have, by the nature of their accomplishments, they go and play this extra game. Why should getting earning to play an extra game ever hurt you? Why should they ever fall behind teams who didn't earn the right to play in their conference championship game? Agree. That's 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 pretty good logic. You could argue that they should that should that should be the field regardless, and that's what Wetzel argues. That's also, clearly, yeah, opinion. I mean, uh, but I mean, empirically, it seems like the number one predictor of who gets in the college football playoffs is the number of losses. Right. That's that is that's so probably that's the, the single best predictor. predictor. That's exactly right. And yeah. so therefore it's an opportunity for another loss. Yeah, that's right. I just that's want to make sure I've got another thing right. And I know the right the power rankings will say something different. Am I correct, uh, Cade, that Tennessee's lost two games? Yes. And am I correct that Tennessee beat Alabama? <laughs> so is I'm this Perry Mason? Is this I'm Perry Mason? Asking a question. <laughs> Why should a two loss Tennessee not go over a two loss Alabama? It's a great question. It's a terrific question. It will. They should be in the. If Alabama is in the conversation, Tennessee should be in the conversation. That's my only. That's my point. But, but the, I mean, can, again, if we're going by losses, which I guess is that's the system, then Ohio State definitely should be in. Should be the next one in if TCU, say for example, like if if, if one of TCU or USC if, loses, right? No, but let's just well, say, so Shane, your your loss your your loss heuristic is I take to be a descriptive heuristic of the way the committee chooses, as opposed to Wetzel and some of these other arguments is what should happen. Well, no, so, agreed, agreed. Yeah, okay. I'm I'm trying to kind of predict what will happen, not what we. Let's would say like this for the NFL. Let's say with this with the NFL, the way it would work. Of course, it's not the NFL, but the way it would work is tennis. Let's say it was based on record. Tennessee and Alabama would be tied. Tennessee beat Alabama. Alabama's eliminated. Now we can start talking about other teams. But in a head-to-head matchup, Tennessee— You can't use the NFL analogy. No. 
Well, I can use it. Well, and you can. I, I think the NFL analogy is not informative because it's a sub, very, I mean, it's so much more balanced schedules and like, I mean, well, like Tennessee it's a, and Alabama are in the same division. They're in the, they're both in the SEC. They basically both played the same games and teams. So no, I, this no is they, they I, don't. It's pretty unbalanced in the SEC. They do not play the same games. We could look at their schedule, but let's not go too far down that road. In fact, I'm, I'm curious to ask you guys a methodological question because I think these arguments, these arguments drive me crazy because we're just cherry picking just like the committee does. There's like an infinite number of dimensions we could use. And it's just doesn't feel systematic enough to me. I'm curious about some simpler things like, for example, consider just two dimensions. Let's take Nate's composite, which is just a blend of a bunch of power rankings. And that's the the quality of like best team. But then we've got this other consideration, which is deservingness, right? This is the, what does your resume look like? And that's a very different dimension than just the power rankings. And so what's the single best way to summarize deservingness? People have talked about strength of record and people are using strength of record. And it's a pretty neat summary to remind you what it is. It is what's the probability that a team from, and people use different criteria here, say the top quartile of, of FBS teams, what's the probability that a team from the top quartile would have the same record as this team if they played the same schedule as that team? And so it reflects losses, but also strength of schedule. And it's a wonderful distillation of deservingness. Now, I'm going to give you the challenge, though. It does not reflect margin of victory. It's just runs of losses. And that's so are we okay with that? Because you figure, well, the margin of victory is in the power rankings and we're not going to worry about that. Or do we want margin of victory in deservingness? Does that should margin of victory be in deservingness? And if so, guys, my analytics buddies, how could you have a strength of record that somehow includes margin of victory as well? In fact, Nate, um, Nate has been grappling with this on Twitter quite publicly. And I'm curious what y'all think about it. I mean, my first pass statement would probably be that. I, I would be comfortable enough with whatever strength of kind of margin of victory is incorporated into the power rankings already. I don't think it needs to, an additional adjustment needs to be put into mm-hmm. kind of the, you know, outcome, whatever outcome based mm-hmm. measure, especially, mm-hmm. you know, cause you know, margin of victory is can be informed and can be very not, you know, I mean, That's again, right. Michigan's yep. margin right. of victory over Ohio state, we just spent, 15 minutes discussing how that's not actually a particularly relevant measure of what we saw in that game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only, I, I think margin of victory, I mean, I'm not going to go back to the exact same comparison, but to say Alabama lost two games by one point, right? They, they, they both games were within a score. Both games were very close that they lost. Um, you know, I think margin of victory does carry some weight and does matter. I think the reason why also we're saying Michigan is in right now, even with a loss, was because they beat Ohio State by over three touchdowns. I think that gives everyone a sense that, you know, they were a really strong team as opposed to they just squeaked by Ohio State. I think margin mm-hmm. of victory in certain cases does matter. In certain cases, but I mean, again, didn't that game feel more like a Michigan? Because like, as we sort of said, it was it was that game felt more like again. If you, I don't know what kind of simulation of what kind of hypothetical I'm talking about here, but we played that uh, that game felt more like a a seven point victory than it was. You, you know, I mean, again, teams adding garbage time touchdowns at the end or whatever. I, I mean, yeah, so I don't know. Be, Margin be, of victory can get it, can right. be informative, but yeah. it's not. 
dependably informative in a way that you'd want it. That's I, right. I think it's potential to bias evaluation yeah. of teams is greater than its potential to inform. I don't know about greater than, but there's definitely, there's definitely a mix of the two in there. Let's just, I'll give you a couple of things to be precise and then we can move on. But the, I don't have a strength of record continuous score in front of me, but I do have the, the ESP, what the ESPN uses as in terms of like who's best, who's next. So an, an ordinal ranking of them. And they show Alabama with the fifth best strength of record and Tennessee with the seventh best strength of record. And then if you pop over to, say, Nate's um, uh, power rankings, his, his composite of the power rankings, you're going to see a big difference because people still love Alabama. Alabama's number three and Tennessee's number five. So in just ordinal rankings, Tennessee is behind Alabama on both those two dimensions. If I wanted to simplify it to just two dimensions, those are the two I'd use, and Alabama would dominate Tennessee. Now, that's unfortunate because they lost the head-to-head, which is, you know – what, that's the thing about reducing it to two dimensions. You should always consider, I think, championships, the conference championships. And so that would, I would start with those two dimensions and then I would permute it for head to heads and for, um, and for conference championships. Okay, guys, that's probably enough on college football for now. We're going to have the final rankings before the playoff seeds this evening. So we'll know a little bit more and, and you know what they do with Ohio state, and Alabama and Tennessee now is not going to change because they're not going to play. And so what they do with those teams is going to tell Well, it really matters just one last sentence. It does matter where they put Ohio State and Alabama. If Ohio State is ahead of Alabama, it really matters. That really matters because you're right. right. There's no more games and there's no reason that that ranking should change. And then, as you said, if only one of TCU or or USC loses, it's going to be probably – or Tennessee – that's the ranking that matters. Where's Ohio State? Where's Georgia, Where's Alabama? And where's Tennessee? Those three. So real quickly, just for fun, um, if we did see, say, USC come in to the number four spot and, say, Georgia in the number one spot, if you look at Nate's composite, what do you think that line is going to be? This is the number one team against the number four team. And Nate's composite says that's going to be, which is just a, you know, a blend of 16 power rankings. 17 point game. 17 point line. And then let's do the other one. If it's Michigan in the number two spot and TCU in the number three spot right now, according to this right now, it would be about an eight and a half point line. So some big spreads between those last two qualifiers, if you will, if those are the two that come in. Well, you're just, let's just play out your counterfactual. Let's say those are the four teams. I think most people would say there's a very strong probability, I'll call it 80 plus percent, that we're going to see Georgia and Michigan in the final game. Yeah, yeah. And just to complete the picture, they, this the composite would make that a five-point line. They give Georgia a five-point favorite, which would be a good, nice, tight, relatively tight final, ma- final matchup. Okay, guys, let's shift gears and talk about the NFL. Tell me about the NFL. What caught my eye about the weekend was all these last-minute two-point efforts one of which took down our ravens tragically but on the other hand the Chargers, tragic about the jaguars beating the ravens oh come opinion. on come on it's super tragic except adi whenever i watch their quarterback i always think back to you who identified him coming out of high school as like the best pro spot prospect based on the recruiting rankings that's ever been in the model and now we're seeing him finally come into his own as a QB in the end. Well, it's interesting. I always I, I I follow him as well because I mean the problem is is that what goes into the forecast in high school is things like height, 
<laughs> well, in your motto, you're saying you get all the you get all the recruiting rankings, and then you tweak them up with some of the. And I tweak rankings. them like things like height because that matters in the NFL. And yeah, Trevor Lawrence is a is a tall guy. So this and, is and so happen. yeah, and he's a very tall guy. Um, yeah. So I'm not. So of course, it's more of a curiosity. Also, and, and that's only based on high school. Um, of course, he was great in college, but I don't think his last year was so great. No, no it was, it was, no, his worst this year. is honestly the first game. Where he's looked like he could be like of a course, legit, because that's what star. happens. You know, when I when my when they're playing my team, they look great. And that last drive in particular, I mean, oh, he the, was Ra- just the Ravens fantastic. are making making Ravens are a weird team this year. They're the I Texas mean, Longhorns a- of the NFL. It's just so painful <laughs> to watch them. It's so painful. <laughs> you know, drama, so- drama all the time, nonstop drama. Can I jump in and point out? I've watched a whole bunch of of NFL, way more than I've ever watched. You know, I watched my Jets. I watched the Eagles. I watched on, on in the evening on on Thanksgiving. I watched last night. I saw more Audi. football than I think I've ever seen outside of playoff time. And and this is my observation. And maybe you guys can clue me in a little bit. It doesn't look like the play is all that high level. I mean, except for Mahomes, is unbelievable. Um, I mean, I watched the Eagles game, and what the hell was going on? I mean, interesting. Well, I mean, the Eagles had mistakes. one of the, had the top tw- one of the top twenty rushing games of all time. Right, but it looked like it, exactly, which is sort of crazy. What happened to quarterbacks and their long passes and all that other stuff? And was that bad defense or was that genuine? You know, it, it just There's dominant line work. I mean, I, I think your larger point, Adi, at least, or to the closest thing to your same observation that I've had is. There's been a lot of games this season where it's like painful to watch offenses try and score points. Like some team, like offensive scoring is again, if you don't have somebody like Mahomes or or, or Tua, offenses are struggling to score points. And it's watching defenses. I mean, offenses struggling is not the most compelling football. I'll be honest with you. And I don't. I, I'm I'm watching different games than y'all are, and, and I know that scoring has been down, but. You know, it just felt like, you know, that, for example, the, the Ravens-Jags game. Like, just whoever, you know, if, the, if the, the Ravens let them come all the way down and go for two and all this stuff, yet, and they got the ball with like literally 14 seconds left, yet, if they had had 24 seconds instead of 14, they probably would have won the game. Because off, it seems to me, and I, and I, traded, I was trading text with, with a, a, an analyst in the league who's like, you know, just whoever has the ball last wins. And it's almost like you need to, you need to, you need to strategize yeah. so that you have the ball last because these offenses. No, and I, and I mean, it could be, I, I mean, maybe my observation is, is, is biased by the fact that my favorite teams are the New England Patriots and Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And those are not, score. those, those I, do certainly <laughs> represent my statement. Well, I think what it says is it relates to something Kate's spoken about a couple of times on our show, which is, you know, any, any receiver in the NFL can be stopped, but how good's your number two receiver? And so I think when you talk about Kansas City, um, they've got a slew of receivers. Another team, you know, Tua's still undefeated. Tua hasn't been yeah. beaten yet. Yeah, Tua's well, the MVP, in my opinion. I, he is. But given, I mean, look at the receivers he's throwing to. Yeah. So my comment is that the reason why teams can be stopped is because they might have one great receiver. But do you have two? Do you have three great receivers? And right now, the best teams, Buffalo. Kansas City, Miami, et cetera. These teams, the Eagles. By the way, the, if the Eagles win the Super Bowl, one of the greatest signings ever will be A.J. Brown because that <laughs> changed the entire complexion of the team because now Devonta Smith 
is the second receiver mm-hmm. on the team. Mm-hmm. And that changes a huge thing. I just, yeah, it's, it's a chicken and egg thing, though. Is that what led to Jalen Hurts becoming, like, also, like, you know, yes. an MVP candidate? Or is it yes. that Jalen Hurts took that next step? And, you know, I I, I don't know. Anyway, but I, I mean, I agree. The A.J. Brown signing was obviously well, incredible. So, so this, the, incredible this uh, my, my, um, Audi-esque observation is that the the best offensive players just have an advantage over the best defensive players. It, it feels like a resource allocation problem. It seems very, it seems too plain to be true, but it feels plain to me right now that I would rather have my three best guys or my four best guys be offensive skill talent because I think more often than not, my if I had the four best guys on the field on my offensive side, I'm going to be able to beat your defense. And so the you, you believe that even of the 49ers right now, like the 49ers the Cowboys. Are the wrecking crew or the and, Cowboys. Well, that's maybe that's why we look forward to the Super Bowl where we can actually see these matchups. And I, I know that you're going to tell me that, you know, there are exceptions. And I don't doubt that there are exceptions. But if I had a strategy for building a team, people, know, people know this and people talk about this, but it just seems more plain to me than ever. If you can't stop a team at the end, if on average, the team the last with the last ball last wins, it's because the offensive teams. With skilled talent, are going to the best offensive teams are going to beat the best defense. Look, you can we'll see find who out. gets paid we'll the find most. Out. Quarterbacks, yeah, yeah, wide clearly. Receivers, and right. the last part is defensive ends. So guys that can really rush the passer are worth a lot in the NFL. Those let's are the backs. What do you say, guys? And cornerback, yeah, the cornerbacks, the cornerbacks. Yeah, well, those are the four mo- obviously four most important positions, and probably even I think most people might say in that order. Why don't we? Uh, talk through the NFL a little bit by looking at the slate next weekend. I, I have to be honest. Often I look at the NFL slate. The last, I feel like I've done this for the last month and thought, man, there's, there's just not that many compelling games next week. There's a bunch of compelling games. Wow. I'm just so looking it's, at it now. Yeah. It's really strong. So, and they'll just give us an update on some of the teams as we go through, but it's, it's a good old fashioned AFC East match with Buffalo going to new England. They're four and a half point favorites going there. Uh, Shane, new England. Do they have a chance yeah. against Buffalo? Oh yeah. What? They got a chance. I mean, Bill Belichick always gives you a chance. I mean, you know, they, they stole one from Buffalo last year when the two teams were just, you, you know, pretty unmatched as well. They've got a chance, but it's not a great chance. I mean, I think Buffalo probably rolls. I'm kind of cheering. I mean, I'm cheering for new England anyway, but I'm also cheering for this scenario. We could actually have a situation where, all the AFC East and NFC East teams make the playoffs. Yes. They all have winning records. I mean, either one of those would be amazing. Both in the same time would be just ridiculous. Incredible. Is that Incredible. the way it would be right now, Shane, or no? The Patriots wouldn't be? No, there? no, because, uh, I mean, you basically would need the Patriots to pass the Bengals. I think the Bengals are sort of ahead of them. And I don't yeah, think yeah. the Reds I, – I think there's maybe a team ahead of the Redskins too. So it's a. It's not a probable Commanders. chance. Commanders. A lot has yes. to happen, but it could happen. Certainly, I think – it's above 50% probability that three out of the four teams in both the AFC and NFC East make the playoffs. Right. That alone would be, would be, and I mean, there's a lot of kind of relevant matchups for that on the slate. I mean, obviously things like Buffalo versus new England is very relevant. New York, you know, I mean, the jets need to kind of keep going against Minnesota. Yeah. If they want yeah. To. That's one of the more interesting matchups. Well, there's a bunch of good ones, but that's an example of a good one. The one that most jumps out, is well, there's a number, but the one that most jumps out is Miami at San Francisco to me. Oh, I was going to yeah. say Kansas City at Cincinnati. 
Well, yeah. that's another, another great one. But Miami, San Francisco, you were just talking about, you know, let's help, let's give credit to the Niners defense or let's yeah. give credit to the Cowboys defense. Miami's offense against the Niners defense. Are you kidding me? This is it. Okay, we've got it. N equals one proof. We're going to get the N equals one is the best yeah, offense. I'll be right or wrong. Right or wrong on right Sunday. Right on That's Sunday. right. Let's come back next That'll week and we'll, we'll have some real uh, <laughs> conclusions there. Well, the Niners are four-point favorites on that one. And uh, Eric mentions the Chiefs-Bengals. That's in Cincinnati. The Bengals with the Ravens dropping that game, they're now tied in the AFC North. And But the Bengals have to host KC. And the, K- the Chiefs are two-and-a-half-point two point favorites there. No, and I mean, Casey basically, I mean, Casey's obviously in the playoffs and, and you know, but, you know, that, that that's, they, they basically, you know, if they lose a game, they're suddenly in, in danger for that number one seed. Yeah. Um, and this would be a, an example of a game they could easily lose. I mean, yeah. I don't think they're going to lose to like Denver or something. Like looking ahead on Casey's schedule, this is one of their most losable games. Yeah. Well, we have since Massey Peabody has Cincinnati all the way up to number five and only one point behind Kansas City. When is that new? Is that no, no, no. This is last week's. Um, no, no, this is this week's. This is this week's uh, with uh, with Kansas City. Um, no, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Cincinnati, one point behind Kansas City. And you're, you're, it's good for you to remind us about the plan for that number one seat is such a consequential thing. Well, especially season. now, yeah, that there's one, you know, one yeah, by. I, I mean, as much as it's fun to sort of talk about like the entire NFC or AFC East team making the playoffs, I miss the old five. I, I, I like the like six from each and then the to one and two with the by format better. I, I, I still don't like, I just like the amount of weight we now give that number one seed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a little bit unfair. It's a big advantage, no question about it, guys. Uh, anything else in the NFL before we look at some other sports here? Two quick things remember. that caught my eye. One is it's small sample size, but you can make an argument. Aaron Rodgers is done with the Packers. Besides mm-hmm. getting banged up again, um, Jordan Love mm-hmm. came in and looked pretty good. I understand at the end of the game, mop up. You know, I could throw to Christian Watson; he might break one for seventy. So let's not put too much stock in it. But at least guys Jordan had like Love, six touchdowns on like eleven receptions or something ridiculous. Yeah, but Jordan Love looks like at the moment he looks like he should be given a chance. And given Jeez. the Packers are four and eight, I don't okay. know why you don't play him more to find out what you need. That was one thing that caught my eye. And the second is, um, I'm sure you guys saw this, but I put it in the rundown. This may be the greatest Tom Brady stat I've ever seen. So. The Buccaneers were up seven with two. Well, they were up seven with 10 seconds to go, but they were up seven with two minutes to go in the game. Tom Brady's record in his career went up seven or more with two minutes to go in a game was 218 wins and zero losses. (laughs) And so that includes the number seven, by the way, that includes the number seven. And so he had never been beaten up until this last oh my week. God, that's by absurd. 218 and so okay, okay, by the way, I think that's in support of my position on the team with the, the, the better skill talent wins. It's been this last, the team with the ball last, when you have all this offensive skill talent. Because Brady is just you know, one of the top all-time quarterbacks, and he just gets, finds a way to get it done. And that's against some good defenses. That's remarkable. You know, and I mean, if, if you can put like – one of uh, like the goat, like the greatest of all time, in, in one of those four skill level positions. I agree that would dominate any <laughs> strategy. Okay. I mean, I okay. think we're, in terms of team building, I don't, don't think you can really. You can't bank on the goat. You can't bank on the goat but, as your quarterback. Yeah, 
Um, and the other just quick thing is that the Mike White in the Jets. Yeah, I think no, that's a, that's exciting. I mean, Mike White exciting. he stole hearts last year. Maybe he'll do it again this year yeah, for a couple of games. Just give him a chance. Give yeah. the guy a chance. Why not at this point? And uh, the Jets look better. Play Mike White. Yeah, I'm sorry. And they have the advantage that they've already pay, played the Patriots twice, so they can't have Bill Belichick destroy a Jets quarterback again. So I mean, <laughs> Mike White's got nothing but but you know sunlight uh, staring him in the face right now. Mm-hmm. Good fun. Okay, guys, that has been two quarters around here. We've got our open segments behind us. We've got interviews in front of us. Sam Schwartzstein, Sam, formerly with the XFL, now running analytics for Thursday Night Football. All the bells and whistles behind that. We're going to talk with him in the third quarter. And then we're going to talk with author Jeff Perlman in the fourth quarter about his new book on Bo Jackson. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the third quarter of this week's show. Two hours of sports analytics every week here on SiriusXM. This quarter, we're welcoming back onto the show Sam Schwartzstein. Sam, formerly with the XFL, we talked with him while he was head of rules and technology there coming up with lots of innovations with that football league and he's on a new interesting gig that is relevant to your sports watching life he is the man behind analytics on thursday night football this is an amazon production we just learned that that sam is a full-time amazon employee now he's gonna be doing stuff outside the football season we'll be interested to hear about that as well but sam good to see you thanks for coming on welcome back oh thanks for having me on my favorite podcast i'm happy to be back yeah, you say that to everybody, Sam. No, we, no, no. This one is because I, I, I was telling Scott before him, like, this is how I got my COVID updates too. So uh, <laughs> yeah, this was this was this was this was must listen information for me. Well, appreciate that. We thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with you a couple of years ago. Glad to have another chance. We saw that you were doing this and thought, well, we gotta we gotta hear about that. You are such a creative member of the analytics community and innovative, and so you've got this new platform. You're involved in this new platform. Very curious to hear how it's gone for you. What are you excited about? What 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 do you what do you think that is best right now? What's coming up? Tell us a little bit about what it is going on behind the scenes there with Thursday Night Football. Yeah, so Thursday Night Football um, is now on Prime Video, as many people have seen. And the broadcast I specifically work on right now is our Prime Vision alternate stream. So it's the one that's integrating uh, graphics on screen as well as you'll see on our L bar on our side wing all the information you want to get deeper analytics into the game. So you'll have Alan Kirk talking about the game, but you'll get deeper analytics to go inside of what might happen on the field. There'll also be insights from me and our team putting together that you can go deeper into the analytics, adding context behind a lot of it because Sam, what's an example. So for example, uh, we'll put up, uh, you know, normally someone will talk about completion percentage, but we'll put up CPOE on the side wing. And then I'll, you'll have information about why CPOE is important, completion percentage over expected. And so for the uh, the fan that wants to see what the real-time CPOE is of the game, they'll get that. For the fan that does not know that this is important to them yet, hey, you know, it's okay to be 70% completion percentage. But if you're really not completing anything that's difficult, are you really helping your team? And mm-hmm. so now we're able to provide that context as well to <clears throat> be, go deeper into the analytics so that fans have a better way to watch the game. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of a conversation we were having in Q1 with Adi about soccer. He, you know, we're all kind of rubes with soccer around here, but Adi was saying, look, when I'm watching soccer, I'm not even sure 
you know, who's winning. Like I have a hard time judging what's going on. I feel that way sometimes watching NBA or even college basketball. Like I think I know what's going on. I play basketball all my life, but I don't really know what's going on. And one of the things you're saying is you're providing information that will let people know kind of real time. The, you're providing information to the more fundamental measures of performance real time, as opposed to having to wait for, you know, find the right website to scrape it off of after the game. Absolutely. And so we're working with next gen stats. They provide all of our real time data. We have an API with them that connects to make sure that we can get our fans that information as soon as possible, as well as providing context behind that information, right? Because the numbers only serve the, the small community of analytics fans that are out there watching, but we want to make every football fan. So people come to prime vision for the on screen graphics. They come for, uh, the all 22 camera angle, which we provide throughout the entire game, but they also want to get the analytics as well. So we're helping both sides of this table, whether you're just watching for the all 22 film or you're watching for analytics, we're helping blend the two together. Mm -hmm. The explanation part of this is a worthy cause, Sam. And it's something that um, we, you know, people talk about and they talk about in, in theory, it could show up in different places. Like people have talked about, well, there should be an analyst kind of off to the side. They can bring them in. Like you bring in the, the referees to explain rules. Some people like that. Idea. Some people hate that idea. But as much as people talk about analytics these days, it must be that they're still widely misunderstood. And that means that there is value in finding ways to communicate them. The trouble is, it's hard. It's hard to explain these things, what they mean, especially in, in sound bites and the amount of tension you have from them. What, what are you finding about how to do that? And what's an example of one that you feel like you've kind of figured out how you want to communicate about it? Yeah. So the, one of the statements I just heard recently kind of talking about this stuff is I forget where I heard it from, but it's math, not magic. Right. <laughs> and so that really at the end of the day, if you can understand basic math, you're understanding that we're doing math here and that we're getting information to you, you know, that you might not be able to calculate otherwise. And so there's different things that are easier to go over completion percentage, right? We can see that we saw he completed 10 of 20 passes completion percentage over expected. Now we're showing you something that you did not see. And mm -hmm. that's where the that's where the conversation now has to happen. Now we have to help explain who's expecting. That's the what I want to avoid. I want to avoid some someone shouting, who's expecting it? Well, we're using analytical models, machine learning data, and player tracking to see what the expectation will be, mm -hmm. right? To get a completion. Mm -hmm. And that hopefully gives someone understanding. I not necessarily have convinced them otherwise, but there's an understanding. Mm -hmm. It's that mm -hmm. invisible part of math that people don't like. They're they're comfortable with that math they can see. It's mm -hmm. the invisible part that's hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would guess part of the challenge also is just kind of trying to like norm the numbers that you're putting up like for people like, you know, like completion percentage, you know, everybody can understand the higher, you know, obviously, like, you know, it goes between zero and one and, you know, close to one is better um, completion percentage over expected. You know, if I see something, you know, like like, what are the like, bounds like, of this a, like like a ten percent completion expected completion percentage over expected is that extraordinarily good like yeah, you know, right. it, it must be a lot about how to kind of provide context of like oh this is actually what you're seeing right now is like i mean you can always obviously compare the two teams that are playing but you know what you're seeing right now is in like you know the 99th percentile of what we see during a season etc I, I don't know how you guys think about like how to kind of almost present the uniqueness or, or kind of like how average or unique what 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 these statistics mean to people a hundred percent. So there's two ways we ground um, the, these, these ground. Stats. That's one, the word I was right, struggling to use. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's what we just, how, how do we ground this? That's every time we're talking about a stat, I'll always go to our team. How do we ground this? The first is 
where they are compared to the other players in the league, right? This player is better than that player, right? We, you know, you use zero to one. I use big number better than small number. That's <laughs> that's a basic thing that we can understand. So gr- grounded, or where are they? Top of the league, bottom of the league, okay? And then it's where are they against themselves? So Ryan Tannehill is an interesting case because, mm-hmm. you know, he's an analytical darling. They run the Arthur Smith uh, play action offense, and he had better years. Well, he came back to himself on Thursday Night Football against Green Bay, mm-hmm. right? Why was that? And that provides, because we saw CPOE, that's the number, and now mm-hmm. we can provide extra context to the fan, right? And so there's different ways. If you're a new player, okay, what if other similar archetype players have done similar situations? Because mm-hmm. fans can now compare the different things. You know, we know Josh Allen's good. We know Patrick Mahomes is good. We don't need analytics to show us that. But if a new guy, Justin Fields, starts performing at that level, that will help us. Hey, they're performing at similar levels. Or Tua, he's now EPA per play better than Patrick Mahomes. That now gives us an opportunity to go look deeper at Tua. Not necessarily he's better than Patrick Mahomes, but it gives us an opportunity to look deeper. Mm-hmm. Sam, what would you say is on the short list of these statistics that you think are most important for people to understand the bread and butter of the advanced football analytics community right now? You've, we've mentioned CPOE. We just kind of jumped on it as an example. You just mentioned EPA, expected points per play. What 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 else have you got? What do you, What's on that list? Uh, my team will be talking about this. It's, it's EPA for me. Because that's the one that is that takes everything that we can calculate and is a goal for what every play should be, right? Mm-hmm. Did you help your team score on that play, right? Mm-hmm. And it takes all the other weighted numbers out of it. And then also it's the building block for win probability, which is one of the most accepted and understood and exciting stats that we put out there. So we put win probability, and it's informing a lot of fourth down decision making. Mm-hmm. So those mm-hmm. are the bit. EPA to me is the one. It is the hardest one because it's the most invisible. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you, you can't just show someone on a football field exactly how it's working. Mm-hmm. You have to teach mm-hmm. them. Um, what is this called? I'm going to get it wrong. But a friend of mine's getting his Ph.D. in education. It's like fractionalized learning. First, you have to teach them success rate and then you have to <laughs> teach them. OK, here's where a points are. Now, here's expected points. Now, here's expected points added. So there's a lot of building blocks we have to mm-hmm. get there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think that that one is the most important for fans to know, because that's a groundwork for a lot of how teams operate as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, how do you think about the horizon for this educational project? You've got any given week, you've got a three hour broadcast or three and a half hour broadcast, but you've got a 17 week season, 18 week season. You've got a years long at some point. Like when, when do you want the watching community to, to be fluent in EPA or to be fluent in CPOE? Like what's your objective on a given week or for a given season? Yeah, I think, Right now, EPA is is being being the people that are going to be the stewards of teaching the world. EPA is like not at the number one goal for us. It's how do we pe- make people better at understanding the fo- game of football, or how do we make you okay. cooler at the water cooler or in your Zoom meeting the next day, right? Like that that start of the Zoom meeting. How do I make you better at talking about football? That's our number one goal right now. The off season is where we'll get opportunities to say how do we make this game even better from an edutainment standpoint. That's like a, a buzzword we use is like we're educating you with entertainment. And so that mm-hmm. makes it uh, making it fun versus I'm having you read spreadsheets. I'm having you look at slide decks. That's not what we're <laughs> trying to do. We're trying to make this look at fun. Like you just saw the Ravens go for it. Why they go for it because of EPA and conversion probability. Mm-hmm. Okay. That now, now I know that now I can predict better. Okay. I can look at EPA charts and I say, Oh, here's what you could get from, from going forward in this situation. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how we're looking at the off season is 
where do we in, integrate these things versus this year? It's a lot of we're going to try things. We're going to add add things to different spots, different weeks. You'll see different ways we do prime vision. And then ultimately, we'll have a better groundwork going next year. So I want to talk about offseason in a second. But real quickly, what kind of feedback have you gotten over the course of the week or the season? And how do you even think about it? How do you know how you're doing? Like, And how do your bosses judge how you're doing? Yeah. Uh, for the, the big thing for us is our fans really enjoying it. Right. And um, from a film Twitter side, like that's where we're, I'm gathering a lot of information. I'm interviewing different people on, online, people in my community, people outside of my community that have found us through our our on screen. Um, uh, when we put our PV sports stats at PV sports stats, that's the social handle for the broadcast. When people find that, they'll, they'll give us info. Hey, I want more all 22 or uh, mm-hmm. we, hey, these stats are great. I don't understand them. Right. Mm-hmm. That's how we're getting mm-hmm. a lot of our feedback right now. And then we're having mm-hmm. we're starting little smaller focus groups to get more information from people about what's making it better. And then we mm-hmm. tweak from there. So you can see our sidebar and, L, and uh, our L bar and side wing have gotten smaller because if people are watching on their phone mm-hmm. and you're taking more space and we're at the all 22 now, now you have smaller players in the field. OK, mm-hmm. we'll cut down character count. We'll cut down a few things. So that's how we can start adapting to make sure that we're getting our fans what they need. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Are are this this is probably numbers you can't probably can ask these questions, but like, are you happy with the numbers? Is Amazon happy with the numbers they're seeing in this alternative broadcast so far this season? Yeah, we're they're really happy for it. We're going we're uh, doing more stuff each week, and so I can't go too deep into it. But yes, they are happy with what we're doing so far. Okay, Sam, talk about off season. You talk about you, you worry more about the edutainment aspect in the off season. Are you talking about strategizing for next season, or are you talking about? producing standalone edutainment assets of some kind in the off season, or can we start looking to you guys as educators? Is that going to be a thing? All the above. I think we're going to, we're going to look at what we think is going to be the best for next year. We're going to have big whiteboard sessions on what we're doing. We've thought about how do we do this stuff um, better? So right now I do weekly social hits um, that we'll put out talking about what's the thing to watch for in the game. So Derek Henry running inside versus outside. Right. They run outside zone a lot, but he ends up hitting the ball inside. That's where you should watch for where he makes his big plays, not running outside, but running inside. So mm-hmm. using analytics and, and tracking de- data to help fans pregame watch the game a little bit better. But there could be a spot where we're just doing normal integrations into the video or uh, edutainment type of hits that are helping people understand it better. We don't know the right methodology yet. We don't know if it's going to be sit down conversations with people <clears> or but there are different aspects to do it as well as what is new information that we can reveal about the game? What, how do we go even a step deeper yeah. to thinking about how, so for me as, as someone who's, you know, built a football league, run teams, you know, been, I've done everything you can do in football. It's, I want fans to be closer to understanding how teams operate because mm-hmm. it's not necessarily to be, Oh, Hey, here's what it says on Twitter. Uh, they should have gone for it. Well, they don't have live data. They have, it's a, it's an analog book that they bring into the uh, uh, the booth every week. So they don't have yeah. that same data to us. So it's less important to know what the perfect call is being, what call did they have the information to make, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. it's that kind of information about how do we educate fans on that aspect of the game as well. So, Sam, the, I'm curious about this educational mission. Um, it, it's In some sense, it's what we're in the business of as well and have been for eight and a half years. And it's only becoming more important as analytics is getting visibility. I, I sat down next to a colleague at a conference last week, and this guy's a Brit, and he lives in London. And he's, he's like, he wants to pitch to the BBC that there should be these little 
analytics moments. It's like a short little blurb, kind of it's like explaining something about analytics. And I'm not sure if that's the right framework or not, but something like that feels like it has potential. But it also feels like it is, uh, it's almost like social impact work or something. So I, I want it to happen. I would, and I would love to um, promote anybody who happens to step up. But I'm also curious, why would Amazon do that? Or is this Sam being fired up about this stuff? Or is it Amazon wanting to play it as part of their strategy is to move into this niche? Like what motivation is there for doing that kind of almost, you know, not-for-profit work in that you're just educating people about the game? Yeah, I think uh, the way you've seen Amazon do integrations before with other leagues, like what they've done with Formula One, AWS integrations there, you see what they've done with next-gen stats. Being able to get into sports helps promote what AWS and what everything else can do. I'm not going to speak directly about what the Amazon leadership wants exactly, but I think that we are a tech company. It is a little bit different than being a traditional broadcast. We are a tech company. Analytics is used in the daily daily lives are our, our, if i'm putting together a proposal it's going to be analytics backed right it's not going to be a, a fluffy put thing put together so analytics is, is heavily involved in what we do as a mission as a company and so it's one of it's part of our leadership principles and it will be part of you know what we try and do on broadcast which i think is mm-hmm. you know great and that's what makes it great is because we have multiple broadcast alternate streams we now have the ability to put super serve fans to whatever they want on those different mm-hmm. streams Mm-hmm. Is there any other sport on the radar of Amazon other than Formula? So give us the whole portfolio of Amazon sport. We have um, cricket and rugby, and we have Premier League soccer. Um, uh, you know, the AWS integration with Next Gen Stats. Um, I don't know every single sport. I know we had a few sports before in the past, but I don't know every single sport. I, th- I think about it. I'm self. I'm asking that selfishly because this kind of broadcast, this alternative data-rich, analytics-rich broadcast, I would want it most in sports that I understand a little bit less, like like soccer. It'd be a fantastic way for me to watch soccer if I'm getting that educated because I would just get another source of value of the of the time, basically. I, Sam, I, would, I would want it in a sport that I love, but does has very little analytics in the broadcast. Take over hockey. Oh, please. <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and there are so many good analytics there. It could it could add a lot of value. Sam, um, what are you excited about on the football front right now? Like, what among the new analytics that people are pushing? Among the new question, really, it's about questions. Like, what questions do you think we're about to get some insight into, or that are you most interested in digging into? What do you think the frontier is in football? What is your frontier in football right now? Yeah, I think it's there's two things I'm interested in. I I love football because it's not a solved sport. Um, I think that w- that's what makes it great. And we see that uh, there is uh, a team. Sam, more say, nickel- say, say a bit more about not a solved sport. Okay. I love that it's not a solved sport, that every week the game changes, right? We know it's best in basketball right now. High high amount of threes and uh, under and free throws. That's what the best, that's the best way to win right now. And it's likely going to stay that way. There are teams that are trying to do double big man. It's not going to work. But football ebbs and flows so much as teams pass more. Teams will move to nickel defenses to counteract. And then you have a better chance to run the ball because there's smaller bodies on the field. And now there's, it's, hey, it's better to pass from shotgun. Well, now when you pass from under center, it's so rare you see a pass from under center. Now it's a better play. It will ebb and flow so much because you cannot solve football because it's such a convoluted sport. It's 64 Mm -hmm. pages rule book, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you borrow, there's such an evolution borrowing from high school, 
Gus Malzahn running the Wildcat in high school, then bringing it to college football, then Tony Sperano runs it, and now it's a basic play that we had the world mm-hmm. Wildcat. It did not exist. Mm-hmm. It was single-wing play from years ago. Mm-hmm. So I love to see how it, the game evolves and how we get new information, right? Everything was about bootlegs and play action, but those are still good. But now teams are running defensive ends, not at the at the line, uh, the running back. They're running at the mesh point. Mm-hmm. It's not as good as a play anymore. Mm-hmm. Now the, the game has to change. And so if we can be at the forefront of predicting what's going to be the next thing, like pony backfields, having two running backs, or moving wide receivers into the backfield, like Debo Samuel, if we can mm-hmm. predict what's going to happen next, that's mm-hmm. interesting. It'll get really interesting with the salary cap. As more money comes in, you will see teams that are going to see, identify different niche in the markets. Patrick Mahomes contract could be the biggest, con- the best contract since Steph Curry's contract was mm-hmm. in basketball mm-hmm. because of the amount of, of, of money he's going to leave on the table by having such a long contract. There is interesting things that are going to come next. And with analytics, you can help predict the future and try and be in the right spot. You might not always be, but you'll be directionally correct most of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I I, I I do believe and have said recently on the show that I do think the best thing about a good model is that it helps you see things before other people see them without, without the model. We're down to just another minute or so, Sam, but tell us something. Let's talk about the game itself. What team are you, are you most enjoying watching these days? If you can say something, if you're not, if you're, if you're allowed to say such a thing, what, what is there a player or a team or even a side of a team that you are especially enamored of this season? So my biggest thing I learned from analytics um, and it was something I did at Stanford was the best thing to do in football is the thing they're not expecting you to do. And that's, that's what I love about certain teams. The, the Ravens, be, not just because Greg Roman was my offensive coordinator for two years in college, but the Ravens, they do a lot of things that teams don't expect. They're the only ones that are running a true triple option offense mm-hmm. and they have specific players to execute that. I also really like what their analytics team does. Part of my job is to try and communicate with analytics teams across the board. And their analytics team is really well put together and mm-hmm. focused on how do they make their team better. They've mm-hmm. blown some big leads, but that's making for exciting football. So, you know, as someone <laughs> who used to try and manufacture exciting football, I love watching the Ravens. So I love what they're doing. I love, uh, I, I really appreciate that, how much they committed to it. Wonderful. That's great, Sam. Um, and we, we also got a, a sympathetic audience here when you're talking about the Ravens. Uh, you mentioned Roman. I heard on a podcast over the weekend, you know, a sneaky candidate for the new Stanford job. Be curious to hear you offline, Sam, your thoughts on how Stanford's going to fill that position. All right, Definitely Sam, offline. thank you for making time. Thank you for making time for Sam Schwartzstein. He is with Amazon. You can follow him on their alternative broadcast of their Thursday night football. That has been three quarters here on Horton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter of Wharton Moneyball. That has become an interview segment for us over the last couple of years, and we are going to do another one this week. We're welcoming onto the show. We're all excited about this. We're all here and excited because we have Jeff Perlman joining us for this last half hour. As many of you know, Jeff is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written about Roger Clemens, Brett Favre, the Dallas Cowboys, and most recently, Bo Jackson. He's got a brand new book out called "Last: The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. And of all people on this podcast, the one that hooked is Audie Weiner. Since then, the rest of us have been hooked, but we wanted to jump in and take a chance to talk to Jeff 
about this and his other work. Jeff, good afternoon to you. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I'm sitting in the basement of Chapman University out here in Orange, California. So like you guys, I'm sitting in a very gray background. No pizzazz here. No pizzazz in this room. No, well, you bring the pizzazz, Jeff. Jeff sporting a Toronto pullover and an old school Montreal Expos baseball hat that just wins. It wins in any room that hat wins. That is true. 100% agree. <laughs> Jeff, tell us your background before we dive into the book. Why is it you're wearing Canadian um, apparel and sitting in Orange County? Give us some sense of where you're coming from. What's going on with you? The Canadian apparel is because I reached in my closet and grabbed a sweatshirt and didn't even think that I was wearing an Expos hat. Mm -hmm. I got the hat randomly and the, sh the sweatshirt was like five bucks. So there's no Canadian tie. Uh, and I'm in Orange because I live in Orange County, California, though I'm from New York, University of Delaware grad, um, former Tennessean writer, uh, ESPN columnist at a time, Sports Illustrated writer for a long time. Mm -hmm. And now I just mm -hmm. lazily write books and I teach adjunct once a week at Chapman University in Orange. All right. Well, glad we have a fellow teacher out there. I'm always curious to hear how someone who starts out in journalism finds his way into long form and then just says to heck with it. I'm just doing long form. Like what, what was your first foray that direction? And you just said lazily, maybe you experience it as the lazier way to write, but some people would consider it the harder way to write. Yeah. Um, well, I got hired by sports. I was at the Tennessean for, which is the daily in Nashville for about two and a half years after college. And I got hired at Sports Illustrated as a reporter, which is like a fact checker early on, mm -hmm. and just kind of worked my way up to covering baseball. And, um, you know, at SI, you wrote these long stories. Some of the pieces would be, you know, 4,000, 5,000 words. Mm -hmm. And I was doing that. I was at SI for about six years, got kind of tired of the grind of sports and took a job for one year, literally one year at Newsday in New York, in New York at a mm -hmm. newspaper because I just wanted to do anything but sports. <laughs> and I had a job for a year where you would roam around New York City just writing about random people. So I wrote thousands of words about the naked cowboy and, you know, about like the homeless guy in front of the uh, Ground Zero Shrine and all these different people. And while I was doing that, I started writing books mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't know what I was doing. An agent came to me about what about a book about the 86 Mets? And I said, all right. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't really didn't have an inkling and it made the bestseller list. And I really enjoyed the, the process. And so now here I sit. All right. And you did enjoy the process. It's very different writing that than the, than the daily pieces for Newsday. Um, enjoy is probably the wrong word. It's, uh, it's, I always say, I, I, a long time ago, I had a college girlfriend. And one time she had very sharp nails. And she scratched my back and it tore up my nails. And um, it tore up my back. And I remember describing it as an ultimate pleasure pain, right? Like someone's giving you a back stretch. <laughs> really and that's kind of what writing books is. It's a lot All of good right. in writing books, a lot of joy in writing books, but it's also a lot of pain in writing books and a lot of longevity in writing books. Right. So, well, there's the product is much longer lasting than a Newsday article, at least the average book and the average Newsday article, but it takes so much more from you. Mm. Let's hear a little bit about this one. Um, is is Bo Jackson somebody you had in your sights for a long time and finally got around to him? Or did it, it seems at some point, once you've conceived of the idea, once you've, you know, the first few pages of your book, it's like, Oh, well, of course we need this book. Did it emerge to you like that? How did you, how did you get going on Bo Jackson? I mean, only in my sights in that I had a poster on my wall when I was a kid of Bo Jackson. Mm -hmm. So I was a big fan of Bo Jackson, but my last mm -hmm. book was about the Shaq Hobie Lakers. Uh, it was called three ring circus. Mm-hmm. 
And I really enjoy writing about nostalgia. I wasn't that nostalgic for Shaq Kobe. That was when I was an adult and covering sports. But <laughs> I love nostalgia. If you look at my books, 86 Mets, very nostalgia. Walter Payton, very nostalgia. Mm-hmm. USFL, very nostalgia. Showtime Lakers, nostalgia. And um, when I was thinking about different subjects, I kind of started thinking about my boyhood posters. I really do. And and Bo Jackson and this mystique about him. And he there hadn't been a book on him since his own autobiography, not really in 1990. So it just seemed like enough time had passed that it was worth delving into. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, let's, I want to open it up to the guys and get their reactions. Um, one of the things that, 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 that you're talking about, he had, no one's written about him, but, but interestingly, the commercials, the Heisman house commercials have brought mm-hmm. him back into consciousness a little bit. And I feel sorry for the generation who didn't get to see him play because he was so exceptional and exceptional in the truest sense of the word. And so it, 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 he is an athlete that it seems worthy to write a book or read a book written about him. Guys, what, what, what do you got for Jeff? What's your reaction? I'm dying. I, I want to share some of my reactions, but I'm dying to hear reactions to Bo or the book. Adi. So what's fascinating is the title. I mean, it's called, I think it's called The Last uh, Folk Hero. Um, I hope I'm getting it right. Um, right. But the idea is, is that there's something about Bo Jackson that is larger than life. I mean, if you look at the, the numbers, uh, even adjusted for, for rate, um, my question would be, is there anything that sticks out that's absolutely exceptional? Um, obviously, time adjusted because he only had a short career um, on the field, maybe in football, because I know in baseball, he was a great player, but um, it, what made him so exceptional was just how incredible talent he was. He, th- I think he, um, I would potentially could argue that he he may have thrown a, a single ball faster than anyone has ever thrown. I mean, from the outfield. Um, Probably. Probably. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I would be curious to know if you agree. He may, he may have been the fastest person who ever ran in baseball. Um and he and he's, he probably may have been the strongest person who ever played a game of baseball. Um, mm-hmm. Is there are these things that are potentially true, or are they just folk? Well, are they Paul Bunyan? Um, they're mostly true. I mean, <laughs> the title, the title, the last folk hero is. Uh, there's a writer named Joe Posnanski, a really good baseball writer, and he referred to Bo as the last folk hero. In that, there are so many things that happened, but we didn't. Act, we don't have the video to prove it. You know, like <laughs> at Auburn, he ran a four one three forty. He's probably when he did that, he was probably thirty pounds heavier than Tyreek Hill, and Tyreek Hill is the fastest man in the NFL. He can't run a four one three forty. When he went to the Raiders in 1987, the coach Tom Flores had him run a 40 on grass in pads. He ran a 419 and they had him do it again. And he ran a 417. Um, when he was in high school in Alabama, McAdory High, I mean, it's crazy. He, he won back to back state decathlon championships, was so far ahead both times on purpose because he hated the last event, which was a 1500. He didn't want to do it. So he got so far ahead, he didn't have to. The second time he did it, he never took off his his sweatpants just because he didn't need to. He sprained his ankle during the decathlon, but the next day his baseball team, high school baseball team needed someone to pitch in a state playoff game. Bo hadn't pitched that year. And he, uh, he struck out 13 in the win. He um, in high school, he stole 90 of 91 bases. I found the catcher who threw him out. It was a guy named Sam Doss from just Lanier high. And um, he told me, Sam told me Bo, he threw Bo out. Next time at bat, Bo comes up, hits a home run, crosses home plate, winks at Sam Doss. His uh, <laughs> his first ever major league hit was a ground ball to second off Steve Carlton uh, when Steve Carlton was with the White Sox. Um, Bo was clocked running home to first in 3.6 seconds. It's the second fastest in the history of Major League Baseball. Um, from the right side, right? From the right side, excuse me, from the right side. He, um, 
He was once taking batting practice in the Metrodome, the old twin stadium. And he took his last round lefty and he hit the second farthest home run in the stadium's history. <laughs> lefty. He wasn't a lefty. Like he could have been an Olympic sprinter. He was, uh, you know, he was a number, he was the number one overall draft pick in the NFL. He would have been the number one draft pick in major league baseball if they thought he wasn't going to football. It's just on and on and on. He's the best athlete who ever lived. I, I don't think there's the doubt. I really don't. Oh my God. That's incredible. What a, what a list. One, one that you didn't name. And I think one of the ones that stays most with me, I mean, it's amazing how many times you have in this book and, and, and it was only beginning, you know, that you just, you keep on for, foreshadowing something that's amazing that's going to happen, but you do it like multiple times a chapter because there's so much to cover. My favorite is the, so far I'm halfway through the book so far is the high school baseball game where he pops up to like shallow left or something. And he's to third base before the guy even gets the ball. Like the ball is in the air. He covers three of the four bases as well. The ball's in the air. And the guy ends up not catching the ball. And he, and he makes an infield. He, he gets a, by the time he throws the ball, he's already passed third. Do I have that about right? It sounds absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, it was, he was a McAdory high. He was a senior. They were playing Fairfield high school and he hit a ball so high. Everyone kept telling me the story. He hit a ball so high. By the time it came down in the outfield, he was rounding third. And I thought, that doesn't sound right. That just doesn't sound right. But then I'd have more and more people tell me. And someone said, call Eddie Scott. He was the left fielder that day for Fairfield. Right. Well, I called Eddie Scott. He's like, it's the highest hit ball I'd ever seen. Um, it bounces. It comes down. I bend over to pick it up. I go to throw to second and he's rounding third. So Eddie Scott, again, that's full hero though. No one's there to see it. Maybe if there was a video, maybe the ball hits a wire, you know, and maybe it falls off its trajectory. And maybe Eddie Scott slips and falls. And by the time... Like yeah, part right, of the right, right. Culture thing is there's no video, you know? Right. Well, Jeff, I will say on that occasion, I mean, you, you say, you quote people saying it's the most amazing thing I've seen. You say that a lot through the book, but on that particular occasion, you ran through like six or seven people saying variations on that in a row. You just gave us one line after one line after one line, six or seven guys said the most amazing thing I've seen in baseball. Eric. Yeah. Ask you, Jeff, one of the lures I always heard about Bo Jackson and relates to analytics and training that we talk about today is that to perform greatness on the field, you have to train extremely hard. But the rumors I heard about Bo Jackson, it wasn't that he didn't train, but that he never really lifted weights. He did push-ups, sit-ups, et cetera, but he wasn't into weightlifting at all. Is So could you just tell us about that and kind of how it relates to maybe, you know, he had so much God-given talent he didn't have to train extremely hard. And one could argue maybe that made him fresher for the actual games itself. I, it's a real tough one, actually. So he even sit-ups and push-ups, he wasn't really, he wasn't, he was just, I hate to say, you know, it's like an old research in this book. You read the old Auburn uh, media guides and it's, you know, from the eighties and every white athlete is described as like dogged, hard nosed, determined, edgy, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and every African-American athlete is like sleek, stealth, you know, blah, 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 <laughs> runs like a cheetah, runs like a gazelle, you know, on and on and on. And you hate to dip into those sort of that ugly stereotype. Um, but he wasn't, he, he didn't lift weights and he didn't really work out and he wasn't swimming and he wasn't, he wasn't. And I actually would take the opposite approach, which is, um, you know, he was frustrating the teams because they felt like he wasn't really maintaining and he wasn't working to maintain. And like, yeah, you have this gift, but a gift at 24 isn't the same at 30, you know, and you start mm -hmm. losing it and you do have to upkeep mm -hmm. and upkeep. And the injury he suffered when he when his hip was yanked from his body, that couldn't have been prevented. It's not like if he had been doing more squats, it wouldn't have happened. 
but I do think a lot of people in baseball and football um, questioned his sort of questioned the importance of sports to him. Like he wasn't maintaining, and it would have been interesting to see at age 35 without ever getting hurt, would Bo have still been Bo or would he have slowed down and kind of gotten a little girth and cause he didn't work that he was not a dogged dogged workout guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just to kind of follow up on that, one of my kind of takes, you know, I mean, when you read a book where heroes in the folk, t- you know, heroes in kind of the title, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to be inspired by the Bo Jackson story. And it is, he's inspiring in terms of like, this is, you know, one of the most unique physical specimens we've ever, the humanity has ever produced. Basically. He's one of the most unique athletes, perhaps, you know, like you said, the best at one of the best athletes we have ever seen, but it, it, you know, and so that's inspiring, but like, you know, it's, it wasn't inspired. He he didn't inspire me in like a work, work ethic sense or something like that. It was sort of like, I think he, he, his athleticism allowed him to be just extraordinary without the kind of maintenance that you talk about or the kind of work ethic that I think a lot of kind of athletes have to put in basically to even get, you know, within the same stratosphere of that level of performance. Yeah. I mean, I actually find the more inspiring part of Bo is that, you know, he's one of, you know, 10 kids in a house in Bessemer, Alabama, doesn't have any shoes. He was wearing his sister's hand-me-downs, is burnt, is sleeping on the floor, rolling up against the wood-burning heater, having burn marks on his arm, <clears throat> um, has a severe stutter, is held back a year, abject poverty, his mom working three jobs, his dad living cross town with his family, having almost nothing to do with Bo. Like he overcame a ton when a lot of people in his neighborhood did not overcome a ton. So I do think he's very admirable in that regard. But if you're looking for the guy like the dogged, dogged workhorse who just lived and died in the weight room, that would not be him. I just want to note one other thing is you list all these things that were against him. You also note explicitly you go through, there were, he says, I think there are three moments where things could have gone the other way. And I don't know if they're him saying three or you're saying three, but there were these moments where it just seems by chance, fate, luck, something, he, he went left when he could have gone right. And his entire life would have been different had he gone right. Like had he squeezed the trigger, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's it, so it's it's it it takes a mix of these things to produce Bo Jackson. Um, Adi was trying to jump in here. Yeah, I mean, I think what what's particularly interesting listening to this is that I think the injury, in some level, has contributed. It really helped the the, the mystique of you know, the mythology oh. behind Bo Jackson because I don't think he really could have had the statistical record after a, a full career that would have been worthy of what he was capable of because he wasn't going to be devoted in the way that you needed to be That's devoted interesting. to be the absolute best at a single sport. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that the fantastic. Asadi, we never been, saw the age decline that Jeff talked about because his career was over at a great, relatively young age. And, and mm-hmm. you, I mean, one of, there's a great, you know, you have a great chapter to discussing like Marcus Allen and, and how he ends up on the same team with Marcus Allen. Marcus Allen sounds like exactly the opposite type of player who just, this is a guy who mastered his craft and worked extraordinarily hard to make sure that, that he knew everything on the field. He mastered the playbook. He mastered any, any do whatever it took to win. Bo wasn't doing that. Um, there's, mm-hmm. there's a side of Bo Jackson you make clear in his book. That's, that's fascinating because if his career had played out, I'm not sure he would have had the numbers. And then we would just be talking about, uh, well, you know, he never lived up to his potential in some sense. Is well, that I mean, I, th- I still think if you'd had a long, sorry to interrupt, but I still think if you'd had a longer career being like, even if he wasn't a total master of one sport being like 
90th percentile in two major sports is yeah it's ridiculous. That, that, it's that, ridiculous. That's a, 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 a extraordinarily a extraordinary and unique achievement, regardless of career length. But I um I think it's really I've been thinking about this a lot. Like I let's just say hypothetically, Bo Jackson has a Marcus Allen career in football and a Gary Sheffield career in baseball, right? Um, I wouldn't probably wouldn't be right. I don't think he'd be nearly as fascinating. Like the question mark that hangs over him is what's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And what could have been is the most fascinating and haunting question in all of sports and, Mm -hmm. you know, different careers. You know, it's, it's why John F. Kennedy is a million times more interesting than Woodrow Wilson, you know, because (laughs) it's the, what if, what would have happened? What would he become? What kind Mm -hmm. of, uh, and I just find that really fascinating. I, um, I, people often say, because, you know, we all have this, inclination to say these kind of things we always say oh it's such a shame it's a such a shame he could have been in the hall of fame he could have been in the hall of fame he could have been in the base could have been in the football hall of fame and i always think like his legacy at least to me is so much bigger than a hall of fame and far more interesting than being a bust in a museum is the fact that we're having this if he had only played baseball and he went on to have a mike trout career we'd say wow bo jackson's in a hall of member bo jackson but we wouldn't be saying Holy crap, you needed to see this. Did you ever see that run over Bosworth? Did you see this? Like, that's the thing. I'd rather have his legacy than be a bust in a museum. I really would. I just think it's much more interesting. So, Jeff, I'd love to get your thoughts about, you know, we now live in a world of, you know, both analytics, but training and people taking care of themselves. And do you think we'll ever see another Bo Jackson again? I mean, someone that both forget just the potential but someone that actually successfully can play two major sports at Shane said, even if it's the 90th percentile, I mean, obviously we had Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders was, I think, well, one of the greatest cornerbacks of all time. There's no disputing it. And he was a very good baseball player. I mean, he wasn't a superstar baseball player, but he was very good, but that's already 30 years ago. Uh, You know, when's the next one coming or is it ever coming? I think in a way Shohei Otani is the closest thing will happen these days. (laughs) which is the guy playing, you know, pitching and hitting. Um, There are a lot of just difficulties with this. Number one is you make so much money now. And if you are, let's say you're Bo Jackson, you sign with the Royals and you sign for this contract and and you're making good money. They're not going to let you play football anymore. Like they're not going to let you. Like there's no way we're going to pay you whatever the prorated amount would be now. So whatever, 20 million a year. We're not going to pay you 20. The Angels are not going to pay Mike Trout $25 million a year and say, oh, yeah, just go play football in your offseason. That's kind of, okay, that sounds great. Like, it just doesn't. And the other thing that happens now, and I see this as a parent in Southern California, is um, as soon as a kid shows any potential in one yeah, they sport, specialize. The parents make them specialize. It sucks. And, like, you'll have kids who are like, but, Mom, I want to play basketball. And it's like, no, you don't understand. Johnny and Timmy both have, there's this great tutor he used to pitch for the Padres and now he's teaching kids how to throw and you should go with him in the off season. Cause, and like, we don't really have two sports anymore. Not good mm-hmm. athletes. Like the great athletes are playing one sport and one sport mm-hmm. only. And that sucks. It's well, so of course our, our friend, David Epstein has argued in his book, the virtue of these um, of, of, in his book range, the virtue of multiple sports would be a good lesson for lots of folks. I want to give you one current example across sports. Kyler Murray would have been a top 10 draft pick in baseball. Is that right? Do we think that Murray, (laughs) if he's so petulant that maybe he can't get along with his Cardinals teammates, maybe he should just go back and play baseball, forget the $250 million they're about to pay him or did pay him or whatever. Could he, could he now at age, whatever it is, 25 years old, hop over to baseball and have a good baseball career? 
So the thing is this, I mean, he could quit football and do it uh, probably, but um, he's already getting criticized by the Cardinals by not for not being dedicated enough to play. Yeah. So yeah. if he all of a sudden was like, I'm going to spend my off seasons playing baseball, how would that go over? Oh, well, by I'm, the way, he's paying millions of dollars. A hundred percent, he can't do it simultaneously, but I'm just curious about what kind of odds we'd give him to have a successful major league baseball career if he just moved that direction instead of football right now. Like, does he have that kind of capability? That I don't know. I've never seen him play baseball. Just being honest. So how, how, his how, clock back too, though, like five years. I mean, you know, it'll be if you switch over to baseball, like right now, it'd be a few years before 30, he even got yeah, to the major. That's right. That's and he'd right. be in like his 30, like early 30s before he hit free agency. It's just, I mean, again, well, financially, it would make no sense. But I don't want to give Kyler Murray. I'm, I'm not in the business of giving Kyler Murray credit, but he is an interesting example of literally number one draft pick in the NFL and would have been a top 10 pick in the Major League Baseball draft. Adi. Well, one of the things that you brought up, Dave Epstein, but the point he makes in his book, Range, is twofold. The first claim is that playing multiple sports actually helps you in the sport that you're best at. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I wasn't necessarily certain that that's provable by any measure. I consider that more of a hypothesis. The second claim is that, and this is the good thing, playing multiple sports helps you find the sport that you're best at, as opposed to Right. You know, you just seem to pick up one sport and then they just stick you in it. And that happens very, very, very early. And with Bo Jackson, what seems fascinating is that he really bumped around. Um, he didn't he wasn't playing football in middle school. I think if I followed that correctly, he didn't really play football until high school at all. Um, yeah. And he he just accidentally found himself playing baseball for there's a certain reason. Maybe it was a family member or some reason why he ended up playing baseball and the whole track thing was like, Oh, that yeah. looks like fun. I'll just go yeah. out there. And, 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 and all these things together, taken together made Bo Jackson the way he is. I mean, obviously the, the, the natural gift is, is, uh, is, is, cr- cr- is critical, but I don't think, I mean, you're not going to see this again because potentially because there isn't a Bo Jackson ever again, but my, my specific question would be, is there anybody in football today who's closest in, uh, in to Bo Jackson? Is there anyone who's super fast, super strong? Or is that just so freakish as that you just don't ever, you're never going to see it again? Maybe Derrick Henry in regards to power and running with that sort of mentality, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but he's not nearly as fast as Bo. So if you took Derrick Henry and combined it with Tyreek Hill and made Tyreek Hill <laughs> a little bit faster, then you'd have uh, <laughs> Oh, have God. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, it's a, you could quantify this, right? It's like just the, the physics of that much weight moving that fast. I mean, we, we, we know the speed of various football players. We could quantify exactly the, the impact we're talking about. It is absolutely extraordinary. But, but there must be, I mean, here's a question for you, Jeff. Do you think there are Bo Jacksons out there in the world? And by chance, they, you know, they might be born in difficult circumstances, and maybe those three breaks that went Bo's way don't go their way, or maybe they don't get into the right program, they don't get with the right coach. I mean, what's the probability that that doesn't exist? You know, it's like the probability of life on other planets is one, they tell us, somebody says, just by the sheer numbers. Must there not be a Bo Jackson? We've seen a couple athletes try this, right? We saw Mike uh, Michael Jordan, the greatest probably basketball player of all time. He had obviously a lot of capability in baseball, try to play baseball. We saw not, I don't know about us seriously, we saw the greatest sprinter of all time, Usain Bolt, try to go play soccer. I mean, he tried it for a year or two to see if he could play professional soccer. So um, maybe Shane's point about, you know, you have a better chance of being 90th percentile, 90th percentile than 99.99th percentile and 90th percentile. Maybe there's a big difference between those two. I'd love your thoughts, Jeff, on that. 
Well, wait, I think what's interesting, I, I my son and I have this uh, discussion quite often. Somewhere out there in the world is someone who can throw the fastest fastball of all time, but just never picked up a baseball, right? Mm-hmm. There's someone out there who just mm-hmm. never picked up a baseball. And there's some guy out there who's faster than Bo Jackson and mm-hmm. maybe stronger than Bo Jackson, but he's uh, playing piano right now in mm-hmm. Uganda or Berlin or somewhere. You know what I mean? Like that's mm-hmm. a weirdness about it. it's all, it's a matter of a sport finding you, you finding a sport, it you taking to it, you being put in this. I mean, with Bo Jackson, it's really the randomness of abject poverty. So needing something to help you get out, having the hunger of poverty and having the hunger of a mother working three jobs, someone coming along and finding you, you know, like happened to being born in Alabama, not in Vancouver. And <laughs> in Alabama, there are these sport teams that happen to get a lot of attention. Like a lot of things have to go right. And randomly, right? For app, you know, maybe I shouldn't be a journalist. Maybe I should be a javelin thrower. But I never picked up a javelin. <laughs> I just always find that really interesting. Like the best athletes are probably the undiscovered we've never seen. Right. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. It's funny. It's, I, I'm kind of curious which side of the of that argument you fall. Do you argue that is it or isn't it? And I would say that exu- such extramal talent has a way of getting found. Now you might not, it might, you're not, you may not make it. I mean, if you, as you point out, I mean, there are lots of p- points along Bo Jackson's life. Um, uh, Cade alluded to the pulling of the trigger. Um, he, that was a, he could have found himself in jail. Um, mm-hmm. And there, there are mistake, there are mistakes that cut people's, but, but, and that's probably a, a, a factor. I think that probably looms larger than never picking up a baseball. Um I mean, they may not pick a baseball, but they probably picked up the football. I mean, I wonder whether the base baseball player who ever lived has probably played in the NFL <laughs> and never played a well, game. I mean, yeah. I just look, the population of the, the, the entire continent of Africa is 1.2 billion people. Right. I don't think there have been more than five African-born Major League Baseball players. But I think if you exposed African children across the continent to baseball from birth, you probably have a ton who wind up playing in the Major Leagues, but they sure. don't even know baseball exists. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Jeff, you 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 talk with Bo. You quote Bo throughout the book. I'm I'm curious how you would characterize his attitude towards all of these achievements, the exceptionalism that he demonstrated. What is his disposition towards that at this point? Uh, indifference. Doesn't really like talking about it. Um, you know, he was. I talked to him for about a half hour when I began working on this project. I sent him a bunch of my books and a letter. He called me back. He was really nice, but he said basically, you know, I I get asked about these things all the time. I don't have a problem with you writing the book, but uh, I don't feel the need to sort of be involved. And so I interviewed 720 people and I, I this is tangent, but I got really lucky. Oh, is that, by the way, is that, I, I was curious, is that the actual number? Did you do 720, yeah, 720. interviews for this? Oh my God. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I get really into it. Like I really love, we're talking to people <laughs> about it. Um, I don't, you should interview people. I'm always one, to be honest, whenever I read a biography and I see the back and they're like, I interviewed 50 people. And it's a living person. I'm like 50 people. Like there's so, the best stories you get are from people. Truly the best stories you get are from the backup catcher with the Kansas City Royals in 1987 or right, right. Uh, the third base coach for the Auburn baseball team. Like those people who are there, but haven't been asked a million times. Mm-hmm. So I'm really hard going to, but I got really lucky too, because um, Dick Schaap wrote his autobiography, his autobiography in 1990 with Bo. And before Dick Shep died, he donated all his audio tapes, all his transcripts oh. to the Auburn Library. And I got a hold of all of that. So it was like stacked. Oh. 
Yeah. Okay. Can I, let me ask you a practical question. Um, Seven hundred twenty. How many did you do a day? What was the What was the time frame for this? <laughs> sometimes one. <laughs> sometimes eight. You know, every now and then I I come down from my office at the end of a long day and say to my kid, like, I got eleven today. You know, it all depends. If you're talking to someone who, you know, if you're talking to his best friend in college, that could be a four hour interview. If you're talking to someone a high school rival who remembers a game against Jess Lanier in 1983, that could be 1981. That could be 10 minutes. So just, yeah. yeah. So how That's long great. did it take to write the book? How long were you working on the project? Overall about two and a half years. Yeah. I mean, heck you gotta, you gotta, I mean, you gotta process those interviews after you do them, much less begin writing. My God, yeah, such, a, such a great project. Well, listen, the product is great. You did fantastic. Strong recommend to our listeners. The last folk hero, the Life and Myth of Bo Jackson by Jeff Perlman. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Jeffrey Perlman, I think, or Jeff Jeff yeah, Perlman Jeff. at Jeff Perlman on Twitter. And um, he's got a number of books, many books before this one. This is just the one that has our attention at the moment. Jeff, thanks for being with us, man. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Take care, y'all. Absolutely. Okay. That has been Jeffrey Perlman, author of a recent book on Bo Jackson. This has been the whole crew in here for Q4 to talk Bo Jackson with Perlman on the behalf of Eric Bradlow, on behalf of Shane Jensen, on behalf of Audie Weiner. This has been Cade Massey. Thank you to Maddie Datz, the boss band. Thank you to Dion Simpkins, the associate boss band. And thanks to you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time between now and then. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.